Revelation assumes suffering and reflective Christians as its audience. If you are in Christ and you are suffering under the name of Christ, odds are that you have or that you will come to a place where you cry out to God, how long, O Lord? God, what are you going to do? Where is all this going? This is a major theme for the people of God through the hymn book of Israel, the book of Psalms. We read it in Psalm 90 this morning. We see it in Psalm 13 too. Almost 30 Psalms have this refrain, how long shall my enemies be exalted over me, Psalm 13 too. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? 74.10. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? If you've not joined in this chorus of pleading, anguish, and inquiry of the Lord, might you consider if you have truly suffered for the name of Christ. This question comes from sufferers of God's people through the Bible. Question, maybe I'm not living as a Christian. Is the word in my mouth, is the witness and testimony of Jesus on my lips? If you have made this your cry, on your pillow at night, or even through the night, how long, O Lord, you are in very good biblical company. For when the saints suffer unduly on the earth or under God's wrath, they go to God and cry out to Him for guidance, for a word, for help. That's what is at the heart of Revelation 6 through 8, 5. That's what the heart, of the heart of the seven seals in this passage. How long, O Lord, why do you continue to let the earth be so terrible? And the first part of this three-chapter answer comes in what Marilyn read for us and what is known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The four horsemen are well known in popular American culture. In 1983, a little known band named Metallica wrote a song called The Four Horsemen. Whether they are Bible-believing Christians or they think that they are the four horsemen themselves, the song does not tell us. The four Supreme Court justices who continually voted down Roosevelt's New Deal were referred to as the Four Horsemen. If you are one of those in the world who play the video game Battlefield 1, you would know that for the dog tags that you can unlock with your achievements are pestilence, famine, war, and death. I don't even know what that means. I just read it on the internet. This tells us what is patently obvious. Much of the world 
much in our culture, knows about the four horsemen. And everyone knows apparently the same thing about them, that they're very bad news. But what precisely is actually happening? What's the meaning of the four horsemen and their riders? The four horsemen are not without origin. They did not ride in from some dark abyss on their own. They don't just appear in popular literature and culture. They don't operate on their own evil, on their own chaotic schemes. Rather, they are subservient to God. They are subservient to the throne of God in heaven. See the chain of command. See where these four apocalyptic horsemen come from in the chain of command beginning in Revelation chapter 4. This is the picture that's being painted for us beginning in chapter 4, picking up in chapter 5, and growing into chapter 6. In chapter 4, we see God who was on the throne surrounded by the emerald rainbow and the expansive sea and the four living creatures and the elders emanating out of God's throne is thunder and lightning, noting his power, noting his wrath. And then in chapter 5, we see that the slain lamb is the only one who has the authority to come up to God and take from God's right hand the scroll. The scroll that we've said contains the plans for the judgment and the redemption that God has on the earth. Only Christ can take that scroll. Only the slain lamb who has purchased sinners with his blood has the authority to go and execute and open and reveal God's plans in the scroll. Then we begin to see in chapter 6 that the lamb is beginning to open the scroll, and he begins by opening one seal at a time. Understand these four horsemen are not just random characters. They are executors of God's sovereign, heavenly plan of judgment and redemption on the earth. That plan that was written in the scroll, the plan that is now unsealed by Jesus Christ, the plan that is unfolding solely on the power and the authority of God's throne. These horsemen do not come until the scroll is opened, the lamb has authority, and the living creature around the throne says, come. Until that announcement is made, the four horsemen are powerless, and they have no authority. They're operating under the authority of the throne. Notice that they are called from heaven by the living creatures around the throne, but what they do takes place on our earth, on the earth. This is, for example, why the picture in your worship guide, and if you look at the very front cover of your worship guide, why that picture is chosen. It might not be very easy to see in, in the black and white copy, which we've made to save money by not printing color every single week. But the picture, there's a, a mirror image of an ominous storm over an expansive body of water. And the picture is actually turned upside down from how it was actually taken, which depicts what Revelation is doing. It is showing us the other picture, the other reflection. You think earth like is like this, but heaven reflects that earth is actually like this. Revelation is working like this. You, you're seeing heaven's reflection in earth's reality. Why would God use these four horsemen? Why would he 
Why would John see these four horsemen? These four horsemen are ancient and and apocalyptic language for, uh uh-oh, not good, bad news. The, The power of the steeds, the thunderous sounds of the hooves pouring onto the ground, the swiftness with which they gallop across the earth, the snorts coming out of their nose, these images and these sounds are to accompany the horses, the sounds of the hooves of your enemies outside your house will make you shudder. Hooves clopping on the concrete on the streets are enough to make people run and hide for cover. Metallica gets it. Their song begins by the last breath of the four winds blow, which actually is a profound potential interpretation of the second part of Revelation chapter 6. The last breath of the four winds blow. Better raise your ears. The sound of hooves knocks at your door. This is a daunting, terrifying idea for these four horsemen to arrive. But what do they mean? What is God showing John and to us, the church? Let's look at them and see what the four horsemen really reveal from heaven about what is happening and will be happening on the earth. Pick up with me in chapter 6, verse 1. Now, I watched the Lamb open one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, this begins that trail, which we talked about in the weeks past, especially last week, where commentators begin to go all kinds of weird ways, shake hands, I will see you later, I will see you in Revelation chapter 20, where we can be friends again. Right, so everything from Jehovah's Witness think this first white horse is Jesus Christ himself to G.K. Beale, a Christian interpreter says, no, this is Satan. I mean, you just can't be farther apart on who this first white horse is. It's Jesus or it's Satan. Many Christians as well believe this first white horse is Christ himself. Personally, I think to fit with the rest of the four horsemen, it makes sense to say that this is an evil power. This is not Christ himself. This is an imitation of that Christ who is coming to ride on the white horse later in chapter 19. The color white alludes to an attempt to deceive and to imitate Christ's kind of purity and authority as as someone righteous. The, The bow by the rider seems together with the arrows to represent a symbol used in the Old Testaments to denote God's own or divine chastisement coming to pierce his enemies with his own arrows. You see this in Deuteronomy 32 or Isaiah 34. These are references to God's wrath being poured out, spoken of in terms of the bow and arrow at his enemies. The main point here is that the conquering is called and is commissioned by the seal of God's scroll being opened. And what I think this is showing us most fundamentally, like the safe, it absolutely means this, is that we live in a world where God has allowed the conquering, the the power struggle by men over men, that that this defines man's habitat, that, that our atmosphere, that the earth is now one of conquering, that his own authority has been sent to conquer nations, even Christians. Secondly, chapter 6, verse 3, peace is taken from the earth. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that the people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. 
Many people will say, and I think it's helpful, it seems like the conquering in the first horse might begin to expand in the other four horsemen. I don't know if that's necessary, but it could be helpful as an explanation. But why does God, perhaps, why do you think God might order an issue for peace to be taken from the earth? It's the way God communicates his displeasure over sin all through the Bible. When you consider the garden, when you consider Israel, when mankind is in sin before him, his people commissioned for him, when they are living in sin, he will disrupt their peace in order to make known his judgment on their sin. It's God's way of saying, you will not listen to my words, now you will answer to my wrath. In God's wisdom and justice, he will not allow man to live in peace in their sin forever. Why does every Olympian and Oscar winner and Christmas TV special host wish for peace on earth? Because there is no peace on earth. The world instead is ruled by the sword. The world instead is ruled in a way that peace has been taken away so that people should slay one another. The, the, at the Abel and, and Cain relationship continues in the earth and is now being poured out in this time between Christ and his return in a special and intense way. Some see the sword as an allusion to government, like in Romans chapter 13, that the government is given the sword. And I think that's possible. The world's not ruled by love, not by trust of other human beings, but by law and punishment and by power struggles. We're going to see later that this lack of peace on earth, particularly sharply, you could say, is pointed towards Christians. The, second, the third thing, excuse me, is uneven scales on the earth. The next rider in the horse, verse 5, when he opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for denarius, and three quarts of barley for denarius, and do not harm the oil in the wine. What's the big deal? Is heaven kind of running a coupon special on flour and barley? I, I don't think so. You might be wondering, what's, what's the conversion to U.S. dollars here? If we go back to Matthew chapter 20, we get kind of a glance into the ancient conversion table. Jesus tells a story about day laborers, and he explains that he's going to be paying his day laborers a, a day's wage at one denarius per day. So if you were to kind of do some calculations, you could see maybe the average American earns around $120 a day, just as a general average guess. Then the way this works in Revelation chapter 6 is that you're going to go to the store and you're going to pay $120 for four cups of flour, four cups of wheat. The, the point is that it's extremely absurd. The, the inflation is unbearable in the world. Basic essentials become unaffordable. But the oil and the wine, don't touch those. The idea here is that the rich can afford even the finer foods, not just the necessities, oil and wine, but the poor cannot. Do we not see this on the earth today? We do. Economic imbalance is rampant on the earth. It's not arguing for some kind of political government or economy. I'm not trying to make a point about any political party or politics, but the world is and has been filled with injustices, imbalance, and greed. Just as an example, how have you fared through the recent COVID shutdown? Maybe you did really well. COVID has really revealed this disparity in the world. It was reported that 20 million Americans lost their job in the pandemic. 
At the same time, roughly 650 billionaires in America saw their total net worth increase by more than $1 trillion, so that they are now worth more than $4 trillion altogether. Forbes.com reports that with nearly 500 new billionaires, think about everything you were doing in 2021. If you became a billionaire, it is a secret to me. 2021, 500 new billionaires in 2021. There's now a total of 2,755 people in the world with a net worth of at least $1 billion. The world gets a new billionaire every 17 hours. Point being, the world's economic balance is unevenly scaled. Again, I'm not trying to argue against the free market. I'm not trying to argue for communism. I'm not saying that. I'm saying there is a consistent poor and rich imbalance. And this will, in this passage, we'll see this affects especially Christians. The fourth rider in his horse is that a fourth of the earth are going to be killed. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed with him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, and with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. A fourth of the earth is going to die. Now, I think if this were happening all at once in our day, or some near future day, we would notice absolutely assuredly if two billion people died in no time. That would stand out, and perhaps that's going to happen. It seems more likely to say that this is that wrath that is being poured out on sin, on the earth, for the time between Christ's resurrection and the time when he will return again that a fourth of the people are going to be experiencing these kinds of things in the world. This is an example of God's general judgment on mankind, which affects the whole earth, but will lead to a fourth of the earth dying. We could throw COVID in this category. It's a pestilence. We could throw measles and cancer. We could go on and on. It's there. And why is the world the way it is? Why is God doing what he is doing in the world? All of these four horsemen really put together a unit of God's response to sin in mankind on the earth. Revelation chapter 6, 1, where we begin, says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seals, one of the seals being on the scroll which the Lamb took from the hand of God. And when the Lamb opened the seal, the living creatures called for the horses one at a time for the riders. They bring God's judgment to the earth. And this is the state of the earth by authority of God's throne from the time Jesus took the scroll, his death and resurrection, not 1914, I don't think, as Jehovah's Witness would say, but between his death and resurrection until now, this is what God is allowing. The four horsemen are executing. And it's not wrong. I think it absolutely makes sense to say it is increasingly worse. Again, why is the world this way? The four horsemen ride as it is written in the scroll of God, executing his judgment on the earth. What does this mean? We're going to see in the next seal what this really means, how this really matters to the suffering saints. We're going to see here when the fifth seal is open that the suffering saints see this and experience everything the four horsemen bring onto the earth as suffering as Christians. That it is a persecution, that it is a suffering that is acutely applied to those who are in Christ. Now listen, in America today, 
we, we still enjoy a great deal of freedom. And I think we're flabbergasted at the idea, the possibility that things like this might come to America or in our home, in our lifetime. In fact, many Christians almost feel even angry about it, as if it's our God-given right that we should never have to suffer anything for being Christians. Dear Christians, God has never promised us the right to not suffer for our faith in Christ on the earth. Never. In fact, we have ample promises of the exact opposite throughout the New Testament. Never once. Rather, we see in Scripture it's a great privilege. It's even referred to as a great joy to suffer for the name of Christ. Reading a book by D.A. Carson The Intolerance of Tolerance, I've mentioned this before. I think I've recommended it four times this week. It's a very helpful book on our culture. It just shows the things like the cost that will be paid in Revelation 6 are not far from our imagination in our time and in our land. From every sector, from business to education to medicine to banking, Christians have lost their jobs or are being sued for holding and speaking and living in Christian beliefs and principles. So it's already here. And for that matter, they're being rich, they're being poor, they're being slave, and they're being free. That's a part of America's history. The imbalance, the the conquering, it's been there all along. But, But here's the deal, Christians, it's been like this for a long time all over the world for Christians. Just go to a website called The Voice of the Martyrs. If you've never been there, I encourage you to go and just look around and browse. The Voice of the Martyrs. Click onto their prayer guide and you'll find guides to pray for countries such as Afghanistan, China, Cuba, Egypt, India, Indonesia, Iran, Iraq, Israel, Laos, Lebanon, Turkey, Nigeria, North Korea, Pakistan, the Philippines, Saudi Arabia, Sri Lanka, Sudan, Tanzania, Uganda, Yemen. You could go on. This is just a few of them. These are just a few of the nations in the world where there is resistance or active government-approved, funded, executed hostility towards Christians. Listen, as Christians, I think, as Americans, I mean, I think sometimes we get in our head that we dominate the world. And you could say maybe militarily we do in a sense. But listen, our, our whole country is 330 million people. 330 million people. Of the countries that I just listed, or that Voice of the Martyrs, the total list, they list of those who, uh, where, Christian, where people live, where there is resistance or hostility to uh, Christianity, combines for close to 4 billion people on the earth. 4 billion people on the earth. China and India alone, where the gospel is, uh, where the culture, where the government is hostile towards Christianity, makes up 2.7 billion people alone in just two countries. 2.7 billion people live in hostile environment for the gospel. I think Revelation sounds different to the ear when you read it around the world. I think it might strike us differently. I think Christians in the West today, we're just beginning to taste of this. Maybe the persecution as Christians that maybe we haven't felt before. 
So when we read about the four horsemen, our mind begins to go, hmm, that's interesting. I wonder when this is going to happen. Hmm, no, I wonder what this means. I wonder if the first horse is Satan or Jesus. I can't, I can't, really, can't really tell. But I think for Christians living in half the world's population and any who are being faithful to Christ, you have been crying out, how long, O Lord, for generations? And they read the four horsemen and they go, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Makes sense to me. We're just beginning to get an appetizer of what that feels like structurally, culturally, as Christians. The four-course meal yet to come. We're just now sampling in our culture what it's like to have your job threatened by those who hold ideologies and worship contrary to Christ and the throne of God. We're just tasting what the four horsemen have been spreading around the earth for two millennia. When the fifth seal is opened, John sees something different. When the next seal is open, he shifts his view from the four horsemen. He shifts his view from the horsemen to the suffering saints who are reflecting on what God is doing and what God is allowing. Look there, chapter 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, Oh, this should sound familiar. Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And get this image in your mind. The saints who were slain for their witness on earth are now in heaven looking down on the judgment of the four horsemen and saying, God, it seems like the wicked are left on the earth. And those who are trusting in Jesus are being killed and taken from the earth. They're asking the age-old question of God's people, how long? How long will you let Saul get away with this? How long will Babylon destroy and steal us away? How long will Rome burn Christians at the stake? How long will governments burn church buildings? This is really not just the question of heaven. This is really earth's question, the, the question of saints on earth, a question in the mouths of saints who have gone before us. The question everyone down on earth is asking, all the Christians, all those who are following Christ, watching Christians be mistreated and suffer and die, and they're asking, we're asking, God, how long is this going to go on? And you see, that is what Revelation is. It's responding to the saints' questions on the earth with the answers in heaven. Saints, you see it on the earth as suffering. Now, from heaven's viewpoint, see your suffering, connect your suffering to the plans and the sovereignty of the throne of God. His purposes executed on the earth. This is a connection to the saints who are being facing being slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Let me ask you, Christians, are you prepared to be slain for the Word of God? Prepared to witness, to bear witness about Jesus, regardless what it may cost you? As a pastor, I have felt the shift even in just in the past 10 years from, you know, hey, be nice at work. Be careful about where you share the gospel. 
And more and more, I feel like the question is going to be, you might have to lose your job to be faithful to Christ. It's not unimaginable. We've suffered enough. We've been rejected, a minority, killed, left out of our family plans, left out of wills, told to be quiet, had our tax breaks taken away, whatever may come. We're going to be crying out to the Lord, how long, O Lord? What's the plan here, God? And God gives the answer to the saints in heaven. But through revelation, he does it so that the saints on earth can overhear. In verse 11, And then they were each, those saints slain, they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. Rest a little longer. Until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. Who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Here's God's answer. How long? While they're killing Christians, I'm completing the number of them. The oppressors on earth, they think they are making the number of Christians decrease. But God is allowing this to continue precisely because he is increasing the number of Christians day by day, completing the number. God's saying, they keep killing them, I keep completing them. I'm not stopping the killing of Christians until I'm done completing the salvation of saints. That's heaven's answer. Why? I have to save more. I'm going to save more. This is the whole point of the vision of the 144,000 and the innumerable mass of people in chapter 7. Go to chapter 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Some people argue that these uh, four winds that are being blown is a kind of an apocalyptic interpretation of the four horsemen. It's the same people, the same things. I, I don't know if that's the case. That sounds like Metallica's interpretation, but we'll move on from there. Verse 2. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the other four angels who had been given the power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So it's almost an answer, why are things so bad? That's one question, but we also ought to be asking, why aren't things even worse? Why hasn't God just swallowed up the earth in his judgment totally, creation itself? Verse 3 is saying God's judgment is not currently intended to totally destroy the earth. That's just the beginning. And then John hears the number sealed. Read in chapter 7 verse 4. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun. 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph. 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. I, I re- as I read this, I was thinking this week about watching the September 11th memorials. I don't know if you watched any of those. 
uh, live this week or participated in any here in, in town maybe, but one of the things they did in New York as a memorial was read the name of all 3,000 or so who had died on September 11th. And they just read the name after name after name after name out loud. And every 50 or 100th name, someone would give a testimony about a family member and a loved one. Then they would read more. And they just kept reading the names. And it's all under the banner that we have been saying as Americans since 2001. We'll never forget. We'll never forget. When I think about this 12,000, that's what just came to my mind this week. Is this, is, this is a roll call. This is the reading of God won't forget. The, the fact that it's 12 times 10,000 times 12, or whatever, the, whatever that math becomes, it, it's a number symbolizing completeness. I mean, there were a million Israelites that came out of Egypt, right? Way more than 144,000. This is a completion number. 12 of the 12 times 10,000. Every one, it's completed. This represents the completeness that God was talking about when he told the saints under the altar that this will go on until the complete number. He hears the complete number. 144,000. Perfect multiplication of God's people. Now, who are these 144,000? They're clearly Israelites, right? Again, this is one of those points where if, if after the service today you come and say, I totally disagree with how you interpreted the 144,000 and the innumerable people. I will say, that's totally fine. I might disagree with you by the time I go to bed tonight. I might agree with you by the time I go to bed tonight. But look at what happens in chapter 7, verse 4. I think it's the same people. I think it's the same people, the 144,000 and the innumerable number. Both of those being symbolic of what these people mean. Chapter 7, verse 4, I heard the number of the sealed. I heard the number of those who were sealed. That number was 144,000. I heard the names read aloud, the 12,000 from each tribe. But chapter 7, verse 9, then when he sees, when he, when he turns to the innumerable number, he sees, after this, I looked, and behold... So I think one faithful interpretation, the one I think that may be, may be best for us is, I heard the 144,000 in the, in the terms of Israel and the tribes of Judah and all God's people from Abraham forward. But when I turned around and looked, I saw a great multitude that no one could number. It's like going back in chapter 5, John says, I heard I heard an announcement. The line of the tribe of Judah can open the scroll. That's the announcement that I heard, John says. But when I turned and looked, what did John see? A lamb as one who was slain. Heard the announcement, line of the tribe of Judah. But when I looked, there was a lamb slain. I heard the announcement, 144,000. But now I looked and check, pick up in chapter 7, verse 9. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Then the angels, the elders, and the creatures all joined together in worship with them. You know, there's been so many days as a pastor where I just long I just long for the day when we're all here. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty about not coming to church some days. But if you do, that might be the Spirit's conviction. But I just long for the days when no one's sick. We got some people homesick today. I just long for the days when no one's sick. I long for the days when no one's traveling. I long for the days when no one's 
in such deep grief, they feel like they can't get up and, and go somewhere. Just long for that, just a just day. Just one, I've just been thinking, I've been thinking this for years, I've never told anyone. Wouldn't it be great if we were just all here one Sunday, no one's traveling, no one's sick, and we can hear each other sing, we feel this place? I mean, wouldn't that be great? And I was reading this today, I was reading this this week, thinking, you know what? That's a longing for heaven. That's a longing for something that will never be complete on this earth. We're going to be sick. We're going to be tired. We're going to move around. We're going to die. But only in heaven is that perfect, complete, innumerable number of people from every tribe, language, and nation standing before the throne, crying out together, salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne. He is powerful over all things and has saved those who are in Christ. I think that when we look at this scene, what we're supposed to do is, in a sense, see ourselves, kind of a weird way, see our future selves. Colette and I were uh, blessed and able to go to the Dallas Cowboys game on Monday night and uh, watch them pummel the Philadelphia Eagles into the ground. One of the strangest things about going to watch a Cowboys game is the 60-yard wide screen in the middle of the stadium. It's like 40, 40 yards high, 60 yards. It's, just, it's almost as big as the field. And from where we were sitting, you can't tell the difference. So half the time, you're just watching the screen. You, don't even, you, you pay all this money, you go, you're watching TV at the game, right? <laughs> so... One of the, if you've been to any sports events, the same thing. Every now and then the camera between plays, between quarters, the camera will peer around. It'll finally zoom in on couples, zoom in on this really excited fan, and they get their face in. Of course, you know, when you, you notice when you look up and your face is 40 yards tall. Like you know, and everyone does one of a couple things. You, you kiss your girlfriend or your wife, or you drink your beer as fast as you can, or you wave, you, you do something, you're on the screen, you're elbowing, hey, we're on the screen. You, you see yourself. It's like you're already at the game, but now you see yourself at the game. It's a, it's a weird moment. We never made the screen, personally. But I, there's this weird experience where what John is showing us is actually a picture of all the saints the complete number of the church saved, secure in Jesus Christ forever in heaven. And that if we could get the camera and we could just take the time to go through the innumerable saints at the throne, all those who are in Christ could say, that's me. I'm there. We're supposed to see ourselves there. We're supposed to look at this and read this, go, this is what's going on on earth in history. But when we look forward in history to the completeness, to that day when all the saints are secure, we are going to be there with them. That's our hope. That's our strength. That's our joy. That no matter what wrath comes, no matter what conquering comes, no matter if we can't afford food, no matter if they slay us to death, we will be secure. Look what they say in Revelation chapter 7. Pick up in verse 15. Therefore they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. No more being conquered like you were on the earth. Now, the one who sits on the throne will shelter you in his presence. 
They shall hunger no more, neither thirst no more. No more unjust, imbalanced scales. You'll never be hungry again, never thirst anymore. You'll never struggle to wonder, how am I going to buy four cups of flour this week? The sun will not strike them, nor the scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. God will bring them from the earth where peace was removed and bring them to the place of eternal peace where they will live forever. Those on the earth are going to wish to flee the wrath of the Lamb. That's the sixth seal. It's going to be so terrible. The last note of history is going to be so terrible that they will wish the mountains they have fled to will fall on them. Jesus said it this way, Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, when Jesus was asked by the disciples, is this the end? You may remember this from last week. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Once the complete, innumerable number of saints are secured from all nations, then comes the seventh seal. Revelation chapter 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood by the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints of the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayer of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. We talked about that silence. We talked about prayer a couple weeks ago. It's silence here, which we, we see examples in Zephaniah, where silence is asked for and required because of the immensity of the judgment that is about to come. It's kind of like asking the entire court to be quiet. The jury's about to make their pronouncement. You can't imagine it. You would be silent. And the prayers of the saints at that moment are, are seen to being offered up. So all of those, how long, O oh Lord, prayers? All of those pleading, God, when? When are you going to resolve the injustices on the earth for those who are yours, for those who have trusted Christ and gone without food but stayed faithful to the gospel, those who have been slain, yet were faithful to the gospel, those who were conquered, those who died by the pestilence, by the sword and by the famine and by the beast, all those who died, where's the justice for them, God? How long, O Lord? And all of these prayers are going up and being offered and being answered in the end, in the end. It's the last note of history, G.K. Beale says. The angel took the censer then, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning, and an earthquake. The very last note of world history. Sometimes the last note of a song really tells you a lot about the song. Sometimes you may not notice it or even remember. How does a song actually end? It's actually one of the hardest parts about a song is how do I get out of this thing? 
How do I end this? What's the last chord? What's the last note? And for God, the final note in this world, once all of the saints are secured, and once the complete number has come in, the final note, how the song ends on earth will be God's final and total no. No to sin. No to fallen man continuing in their sin. No to idolatry existing in perpetuity. No to abuse and adultery. No to food shortages. No to persecution. Farewell to Adam's fallen world. There will only be the renewed world. There will only be the renewed things. The new existence for those who put their trust in Jesus Christ and the new creation, the Lamb, will no longer be pouring out His wrath, but will be the shepherd of those who've trusted and been faithful to Him. Three ways I'd summarize application for you today. Number one, know the plan. Seven seals are an answer. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Well, until the complete number has come in. Until that complete 144,000 is complete, until the complete innumerable number of the saints is complete, that's when. That's what, God, that's what I'm working towards, God is saying. They will keep killing you, I will keep completing you. Don't underestimate the slain lamb, number two. I mean, just encourage you not to think very small about Jesus Christ, the man who was crucified for a sin, the man whose blood was offered before God's throne in heaven, the slain lamb who took the scroll, Jesus was crucified mercilessly, murderously. Yet he went on, on his own accord. He, he went because God sent him. He, he died on the cross to secure salvation for sinners. So if we put our faith and trust in Christ, even though we might in, endure by effect the wrath that is being poured out in this time, we can be saved from our sin. Even if we're slain by the sword, we're saved from our sin. Because we put our faith in Jesus Christ and he's raised from the dead. And don't underestimate the slain lamb because he is not a weak slain lamb. He is risen. He holds the scroll of God. He opens the seals. He executes God's plans in the scroll for judgment and redemption. He is no small, puny, slain, helpless lamb. He's executing the plans of God and creation to wrap up all of history on the earth. Christians don't underestimate the slain lamb and what he's doing in his power. If you're not believing, you're not trusting in Christ, you might consider, do I underestimate my picture of Jesus? That he accidentally got killed and God might be able to salvage some usefulness out of Jesus' accidental death when actually this was God's plan to save sinners, to save you, to save anyone who is here today who would put their faith in Christ cry out for forgiveness of sins and give their allegiance to Jesus Christ. Know the plan. Don't underestimate the slain lamb and continue in the word and the witness. Continue in the word and the witness. You find it difficult to be a Christian at work? Continue in the word. Continue bearing witness. You find it difficult to be a Christian in your family? Concerned about what it's going to cost you if you speak up, if you say something about Jesus to someone? We ought to have wisdom. We also ought to have boldness. We also ought to have fearlessness that no matter what comes, no matter what happens to us, no matter what gets poured out, no matter if we are conquered or slain or died by famine or pestilence, no matter what happens, that we can be secure in Jesus Christ. That we'll, we won't be 
forgotten by God. They can kill us. He'll complete us. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. We just acknowledge our, our own weakness on our own and how much we need your spirit. How desperate we are for help. Both in understanding this passage and living it out and being holy in the world, being faithful to Jesus Christ in the world. We pray, Father, that you would help us that today, that this moment, you would encourage us in boldness to continue in witness of the word, of the gospel, seeing our security in heaven forever. I'll give you just a moment to pray, to reflect on your own, what we've sung today, what we've read today, and how God might lead you in repentance, how God might lead you in encouragement and faith to keep going. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these gathered here today. Father, thank you for the chance to worship you, for the chance to hear your word, to see the security for the saints. We love you. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.